Welcome to the GBTS podcast, Golf Beneath the Surface podcast. My name is Raymond Pryor. Uh, By trade, I am a performance consultant. My areas of expertise are performance psychology, performance neuroscience, and sleep science. I am with my co-host and good friend and colleague, Chase Cooper, whose knowledge and curiosity of the game of golf, well, they're as deep as he is tall, which is quite a bit. Um, And we welcome you to the Golf Beneath the Surface podcast, where we aim to have some deeper, more in-depth and layered conversations about golf, to see it in a multi-dimensional way, and to perhaps explore some things in a way where we can really talk with some of the experts in the games and really get to a mechanistic level with a variety of different topics. And with that in mind, I'll introduce my co-host, Chase Cooper. Hi, Chase. What's up, Doc? Not too much. Chase, one of the things you and I have in common is that we see performance, particularly in golf, as more than meets the eye, oftentimes. We see what's on the surface, but there's more going on underneath. And understanding what's underneath the surface is something that grants us access to being able to simplify our performance in real time, to be more direct and concise with our performance, and dare I say, just perform better and do so more consistently. And I can't say how excited I am for us to be able to share some conversations and talk to more people who see the performance in that way as well, and perhaps share a lot of that information with a lot of our listeners. Yeah, you know, one of the things that you like to say a lot of times is you don't like to guess, you know, with somebody's psychology. I don't, I mean, in my field, there's some guessing, not, there's, there's not, um, it's not always black and white as far as swing changes go, or as far as what we're doing with mechanics, but I really like to guess the least amount possible. Um, and so, yeah, my background, I'm, a, I'm definitely a golf nerd by trade. I, I got really deep into 3D motion capture and got really deep in biomechanics. And as much golf technology as you can throw at me, I'm, I'm all for it. Um, just because I, I wanted to understand, some of it was with my journey, I, but I wanted to understand what's actually happening and why didn't I reach my goals or why didn't I hit it as good as I thought I could have. And, and instead of, you know, some old school you know, old school PGA pro telling me to keep my head still. I just thought there was always more to it. Not that there's anything wrong with the, with the old, old school guys. Cause some of those guys were really, really good, but, um, I just always felt like there was more to it. And, um, and so it, yeah, it's led me down a, a, a deep path into understanding how we move, um, understanding that there's not one size fits all in, in any part of golf. Um, and, you know, trying to learn as much as I can to help as many students as I can. And that's where you and I kind of hit it off. You know, I had a, a shot a podcast with, with Hal Sutton, Be The Right Club Day podcast, great podcast. We shot 75 episodes and two of our most popular ones were with you. And, you know, I'd had the, the, I'd been fortunate enough to speak to a bunch of sports performance coaches and psychologists and all that stuff. And I just loved your approach. And I loved how you explained it. I loved how you educated us on not only how the brain is designed, um, but then a way to get us into um, high performance, but get, get us to perform at a higher level from a, from a mental standpoint, better than other, other coaches, other consultants could, I think. And so that's why we're here. You know, we've been talking about doing this for a little while and uh, this is episode one and I'm, I, you know, I'm so excited. Yeah. Chase, Tell us a little bit about your story. So for our listeners, in case you can't tell, uh, Chase is a teaching professional. He's a expert on the golf swing in a variety of different ways. Like he said, from a motion capture standpoint, from a biomechanical standpoint, and 
any swing coach worth his or her medal understands physics to a certain degree. Um, give us a little bit of your backstory. How did you get here? Uh, my dad was a, a high school golf coach. Um, so I was, he was coaching, he started coaching even before I was born. Um, he was, he was a big basketball player, really a basketball player, got, got injured, had some, had some back, back surgeries and some issues with his back. He was tall too. So any tall people, we are, the, the world's not designed for six, seven flights and cars and all that stuff. So, um, but anyway, he had some back issues and, um, ended up, he quit coaching basketball and started coaching golf full time again around the time I was born. And so I was always at the golf course with the team and he, he, he put his all into, into helping these guys. And so played, played a bunch of golf, obviously at an early age. And back in the, back in the time when, if we were bored, we went and shot, shot basketball, you know, shot hoops or went and play basketball, went and play baseball, went and play golf. We didn't sit in front of a screen and, and look at our iPhones or iPads all day. And so, I just played a ton of golf growing up and got got pretty good at it at an early age. I was a I was a half decent athlete. Again, my my parents were both really good athletes, and so um, started playing. Shot sixty five at the Texas Oklahoma little junior tournament in Wichita Falls when I was twelve. Um, so grew up on a on an easy golf course. Learned how to score at an early age, and um, played played golf and basketball. Um, the my my relationship with basketball and his relationship in, in basketball really kind of. Um, nudged me in certain directions with golf, some good, some bad. Um, and it, it kind of almost kind of defines how I coach today a little bit. Um, we were obviously really tall. I hit it a long way. Golf course I grew up on was really easy, really, 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 really open. And so I learned how to score, but I also learned that, or I didn't learn that you had to hit it straight when you got to, uh, got to the higher levels of golf. So I hit it a long ways offline. And, and our issue was growing up was, you know, my dad was always making me do stuff in a row. I'd have to go hit 10 drivers in the fairway in a row, go make 53 footers in a row. And anytime I missed or anytime I hit something offline, it was always, well, why did it go that way? Well, what did we do wrong? Why was that different than the six before? And I wish we would have thought about it a little differently and said, man, if you can hit six out of seven, if you can hit seven out of 10 at your length in the fairway, you're tour level, like you're good enough. And we didn't go that route. We went the other route. We were always trying to fix the three that I hit offline. And so it made me, um, it helped me start to understand the golf swing a little bit better, but it also didn't put me in the best place to perform at the highest levels. Um, I once stayed my a, scene It's a bit of a double-edged sword where you're drilling the mechanics so much that you do develop a really deep understanding of what causes the ball to go to certain places. But at the same time, it's also grooving perhaps an outcome expectation that doesn't necessarily allow for error. Yeah, correct. I thought if I did X, Y, and Z in the golf swing, I would produce that shot every time. I was, I was searching for certainty and, yeah. and unfortunately doesn't exist in, in, in golf especially, but you know, I, you know, I was, don't get me wrong. And, and, and sometimes I look back and, and I think if I could have pushed through it and got those 10 in a row a little bit better and, and, um, you know, made practice harder which it was we made practice plenty hard but maybe made it even harder i could have been better like it was it may have been better than i thought it was but mm -hmm. but i think now we would have we would have accepted seven or eight out of ten and, and allowed for a miss or two or maybe we said hey you can miss the fairway but you can't miss it left you can miss it right or you can miss it left or you can miss it right you can't miss it left just to kind of play more golf in, in yeah. the drills versus just it has to be in the fairway um but don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I I won state my senior year by nine shots. Beat a, beat a bunch of really good players. Played Division One golf. Played at Reno. Had a chance to be an All American uh, my senior year. But I just I always tell people I had this. I felt like I had the skill. And again, I'm going to sound like an old washed up, you know, old 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 golf professional. But 
I had the skill to do it, um, but I just didn't quite didn't quite make it. Um, you know, when I was good, I was really good. Um, I beat a bunch of guys that are on tour right now. Um, you know, I missed U.S. Open by a shot one year. Um, I, you know, made match play the USAM, made match play the Pub Links, um, won a few professional events. So my good was really good, but I was searching too much. I was playing golf swing too much. And one of the things that's kind of led me to that kind of led me to coaching and, and really like your, your kind of stuff was early on in my development. I played a lot of golf and I love playing in money games and I love getting out and competing. Like I love to go play in little, little matches. And toward the end of my professional career, when I was still trying to play, I was on the range all the time looking for answers. I was searching for certainty. And it just, again, as, as we'll talk more about in the coming episodes, it just doesn't exist. And it just led me down a dark path. We, wife and I got pregnant um, realized that the mini tour life wasn't good for trying to raise a kiddo and pay for the kiddo and all that stuff. Right. And so, um, that's how I got into, I was, I always loved to teach. I was always teaching on the side when I was, you know, in college and, and at home from mini tour stuff. And so got into teaching and then I got an opportunity out in Scottsdale to work for a 3d motion capture company. And I became their director of education and sales. And so next thing you know, I'm traveling to Europe, traveling all over the country, talking to some of the brightest minds in the golf industry. And that was like, you know, a, a a PhD level education, the golf swing on steroids. Like I was talking to everybody and it was, it was the best thing for me for, for educating me on what I was, what I was going to do after that. And then I was, I was in Scottsdale working for the company for about three years and then met Hal Sutton brought me to, um, to Texas, um, worked with him off and on for about eight years. And then we, you know, as I mentioned, shot a podcast together, great listen to Hal's, Hal's a great human, great, obviously one of the best players to ever play the game. And learned a lot from him, and and next thing you know, we met you, and you know, again had you know have had tons of conversations, and you know, people ask me my style of coaching. Um, I, I you know I would say there's a few what we like to call non-negotiables. Um, you know, I don't you can swing swing your motion can be about however you want it to be. I mean, there's there's a few things you can and can't do, but I'm I'm a big low point control guy. So like if we're talking about if you look at somebody face on or you're you know kind of the caddy view as some people say it the club swings in a circle it swings up and down and and there is a uh, tour players the better players control their low point much better than amateurs do and so some non-negotiables non-negotiables would be you know you, your low point with an iron can't be behind the golf ball it has to be ball first and then the ground the low point has to be in front of it um, driver, most players are going to be slightly up on driver. So the low point would be a little bit behind it, but really low point control with irons is, is to me, the, the, the key. And so from there, if you can't control low point, you can't control the golf ball. If you can't control low point, then we got to change your motion, change your backswing, start moving some stuff around. But I, I base most of my stuff on low point control, then it's club face control, then it's, then it's path. Um, but people are messy. Everybody's a little different, you know, and, and I'm fortunate my wife's a physical therapist. So we get to nerd out on how the body's built and how we move and range of motion, all that stuff. So somebody like you that has some, some past shoulder history, you know, is going to move a little bit different than me. Who's hypermobile in my shoulder and has a lot of external rotation and all that stuff. So I am, I'm fascinated about helping people perform at their best, helping people. I, I tell people a lot of times I'm a ball striking coach. I want you to hit it better. But now after a lot of our conversations, I think there's a much easier way to teach um, the, the mental game, a much better way to coach the mental game. And so now I think I'm much more rounded, well-rounded in, in, in helping out both sides as, as, we sh as all of us in, in my industry should be. We should be good, good swing coaches and, and performance coaches too. I think we need to play both of those roles. Um, but again, I don't like to guess. I want to I have as many answers as I can. And um, 
I lose sleep if I don't help my players. I lose sleep if, if they leave a lesson and they didn't, I don't feel like they got better. And I think I'm, that just shows anybody that, that does this for a living needs to feel that way too. And, and I'm super passionate about learning, growing, and helping people the best I can. Yeah, so I'm getting the sense that obviously there's a, a deep interest in helping other people get better, providing value. And, and your knowledge base is, covers a variety of different things. Obviously, the mechanics of the golf swing, but you've got some technological experience as well. Um, what does your teaching portfolio look like right now? Like, who, who do you work with? How do they work with you? What does that look like for people at the moment? Um, that's a great question. I, you know, I'm... People ask me that all the time, but who do you, you know, five years from now, who do you want to work with? I'm like, I want to work with anybody that wants to get better, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and, and fortunately for me, I, I charge a, a, a high enough price that I'm not going to get very many people that aren't serious about trying to get better. If you're serious about getting better, I'm all in. I don't care if you're a 50 handicap or a 30 handicap or a, or a plus five. Um, sometimes the 30 handicaps are much easier because you can't screw them up. You know, the, the plus fives, you can do some, you know, the tour players come in and you can do some damage. Um, so I would say right now I'm probably um, I'm probably fifty fifty adult so say twenty five and older to twenty five and under um, probably fifty fifty I would say I've got players from I've got a you know a girl that you've helped out with that's playing an Epson tour event this week I've got um, a couple of kids playing in some big AJGAs um, we've got a bunch of kids in college that are you know all over the place and so I've I've been really fortunate enough to work with a bunch of good players. I've worked with a couple of major champions. Um, we've, I've had some, some, some wins all over the, all over the country, all over the world. And so, um, just been, just been fortunate, um, to be able to work with, work, work with a bunch of good players. Um, I don't, like I said, I just enjoy helping people that are serious. I like swing. I like making swing changes when people come in and they're like, I'm so tired of my old golf swing and I'll, I'll give you a year. I'm like, let's go, let's, let's, let's change it and make it more efficient, you know? Um, and I also like with, I like to work with people that, that, I had a kid a couple of weeks ago that came in and he was like, he goes, I can shoot 65 at home. He goes, I shoot 75 on the road. I shoot 75 in tournaments. I'm like, all right, pulling out my Raymond Pryor stuff. Let's go. Let's get into the psychology. Let's, uh, let's see what's going on, you know, when, when the gun goes off. And so I, both my parents were public school teachers, so it may just be a, a nurture thing. I just come by it by, by trade, but, um, yeah, I just, I enjoy, I enjoy seeing people reach their potential. I, I enjoy, um, seeing people get happy because they hit a great golf shot or they shoot their lowest score. There's just something about it that I, that I love. And like I said, I want to have as many tools in my toolbox. Not every coach is going to have all the answer, all the answers, but I just want to have as many tools in my toolbox to help as many people as I can. And if I don't have the answers for them, I would love to help them find somebody that does because I just, this golf's too hard. The game's too hard to just be, to, just to give somebody the old cliche stuff. That's not really going to do anything for them. And so if you want to come change your swing, let's go and let's, let's make it as science-based as we can, or at least have the answers being based off real science. Um, and if you want to just go be an artist on the golf course and go, go, go work on your mental game, man, let's go, let's go do it. So my goal is to sh help people shoot lower scores and have some more fun. Yeah. So you've got, uh, it makes sense to me. This is the first I heard that your parents were both teachers, yeah. public school teachers, because I have seen you give a lesson to a major champion before, and you have a, a teaching style that it makes sense to me why you find a lot of success with people, not just your deep investment in them, but you work around objectivity, not subjectivity more. Not that we aren't subjective creatures as humans, we are, but also you ask a lot of questions in a golf 
uh, lesson, which instead of, you know, on the surface, it's just like, well, I go to an instructor, he just tells, he or she just tells me what to do. But anybody who's a really experienced and competent instructor in anything knows that oftentimes before providing instruction or direction, there's an awful lot of questions involved because you have to get a large enough picture of this person and what they're experiencing and what's actually happening before you just jump in and say, do this or do that. And one of the things I like about you a lot is that you're super curious about stuff before you start making conclusions about it, which allows us to get to what's more objective, to connect with that person on a more, um, on a more authentic level, which then allows us to provide value in that way. So that's, uh, I, I, I can I, see I, where, where the, the parenting teachers have, have left, uh, some residue for you. It's funny. My mom, my mom was very much like that. Um, lots of questions and, and would make you come to the answer. And my dad was like, don't you know it already? Like it's, it's just this. And so mm -hmm. there's, there's definitely some, a little bit of both, a little bit of both sprinkled in. I think if you would have seen me give a lesson to a 30 handicap, my approach might've been a little different. I might've been a little bit more, no, you're going to do it this way. But again, I think my style is I drive some kids crazy because they just want the answer and I want them to give me the answer because it's not about, you know, those who, you know, there's an old saying, he who does the work does the learning. And I want, I want them to come up with an answer. And I, I always hated being put on the spot like that when I was that young. And I, so I try to do it in a safe environment to where I don't, they don't feel like they're stupid if they don't know the answer. But like, if somebody, I'm never going to tell somebody what, it sh what, what a swing change should feel like. What should it feel like? Like, you tell me. We get the motion right. You tell me what you're having to do to make that motion. Because what you feel and what I feel are, could, could be completely different things. Now, if it's between we're trying to, you know, change the way the right elbow works in the downswing, I may say, hey, it may feel, you may get some, some, uh, some thoughts or some feels around this, but very, very rarely am I ever going to do that. And so I I want my students to know why they're changing something. What's the reason for the change? And I want them to be able to tell me what it feels like. I want them to be able to explain because two weeks from now when they're on their own, my feel that I try to give them, it, it, there's, you know, there's no value in that. I want them to say, man, I remember feeling this cool. Chase it, chase it all you want. Like, you know, it's, it's your feel. It's not mine. Yeah. Chase along your journey here. So you've talked a little bit about your your childhood and learning from your parents and, and playing golf in certain environments and then moving toward others and how that's evolved into your teaching. Were there any, um, in psychology, we would just say paradigm shifting experiences where you go, Oh, whoa, seeing something in a new light in a way that is more credible to us, that is deeper for us that have maybe shaped a bit of your teaching style, teaching philosophy, where, you know, if, if I'm putting it in terms that I use, like you kind of, plant a flag in, in the ground and go, hold on a second, I need to work and understand this more, which then leads to, and then fill in whatever blank for us. Were there any of those moments or experiences for you along the way? Yeah, it's such a great question. I would say a couple of things. From a playing standpoint, it was my failures toward the end have really kind of changed the way I work with many tour players and changed mm -hmm. the way I work with you know, and it's not exactly what you're alluding to, but like, man, I, I look back at my career and I, you know, I was, a, like I said, I was a ranger Rick toward the end and I was just hitting golf balls and I was searching for answers. And after learning more from some of our conversations, frankly, it's like, ah, that's what I was doing. That was the vicious cycle I was in and I couldn't, I couldn't get out of it. And I could, I could do really good things on the range, but I go to the tournaments and I just, I was horrible. I was great by myself. I was horrible playing with members I was uncomfortable with or whatever. And so 
that was that's been huge for me to kind of self-reflect and look back on like the why why did i struggle and i i mean i use my past struggles as as education for all my players i've had you know i i i um coach jumped a little bit when i was searching and i just it was it was horrible i couldn't i couldn't figure it out and it wasn't their fault they were good coaches they they did a good job but it was it was a vicious cycle i was in so like I use the I use that experience a lot from a teaching from a pure coaching and, and golf swing standpoint. Yeah, the 3D stuff was was massive. Um, I, I had to open up and be like, okay, what do I think I know, and what do I truly know, and what's really happening? And like, there's there's just things that there's just things that happen that like for a seven iron for okay, we, we were talking about low point control. So low point control, um, PJ Tour average with a seven iron is about four and a half inches past the golf ball. So you think about it, it's almost, it's almost five inches past the, the club is bottoming out. The middle of the divot is five inches past the golf ball. Now it won't be for everybody, but like there's a lot of amateurs at home that they're half an inch behind the ball. And so like that kind of stuff um, has, has helped me out a bunch with the, with the, the 3d stuff is like, okay, so if we know low points, five inches forward, now how do we move in a way to, get the club to bottom out there and so i mentioned the low point because so in 3d we we measured a lot of sway so sway is side to side movement um, to, to towards the target or away from the target well the pelvis sway at impact for most tour players is about five inches so the middle of the pelvis moves five inches towards the target you know that that kind of stuff is just massive hence the, hence the change in low point and it definitely affects it, right? Because now the left shoulder can get more forward and now we can, we've got time and room to get the handle more forward and all that stuff. And so, you know, there are a lot of the old cliches, like I'll, I'll give you one more, but a lot of the old, old thoughts were like, you know, we have to rotate a certain amount or we have to do this or we have to do that. You don't really have to, there's only a few things you have to do. Like one of the things I talked about a lot in, in, in some of, some of my social media and, and whatnot is that, um, the ladies on the P on the LPJ tour move their hips faster, rotate their hips faster than the guys do. But yet all along I was taught the hips were, were our speed source. You know, the hips were the most important thing in the golf swing. You, you look at old school golf, even now still hips, 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 hips. The, the women actually swing their, their chest, their thorax, their rib cage faster than the guys do. It's about the same, but it's, a, it's mathematically, it's a little faster. So you're telling me the ladies swing, they rotate their hips faster, they rotate their chest faster, but yet the guys hit it miles further. So then where do they get their speed from? Well, they get their speed from their shoulder. The, sh the shoulder guys are just built to lift things and, and move things around with their arms. So shoulder stability and, and, and upper body strength is so much bigger and better for most guys. And then their arm speed was so much faster. So like that right there was like, boom, like really the arm speed is that much faster and so that was a, that was a huge like turning point for me. Okay, I want educated arms and hands. I don't. I can teach the pivot. The, I can teach the body to the, the hips. Anybody that swings their arms correctly moves their hips fine. Everybody that swings their that move, that rotates their hips correctly, there's no guarantee that club face is in the right spot. There's no guarantee that the, the, the that the arms are moving correctly. So I would say, back to your original question, like that was a big turning point for me. Like, where does the speed come from? How do we generate it? Everyone that swings fast has fast arms. Everyone that swings fast does not have, they do not all have fast hips. Yeah. So I'm, if I'm kind of uh, collecting your response here, there's a paradigm shift for you reflecting on your own failures and not crushing yourself for them, but almost asking questions like what happened that led to such failures and 
understanding them allows you to then use that information to perhaps teach in a way that, I mean, it's shaped your teaching philosophy a little bit and that you allow for more error and search for less certainty and encourage your players to do so. Correct. And then there is, uh, I'll quote our, a colleague of ours, Sean Foley, who says, oftentimes when we're talking about objective, truthful information, like direct evidence with something, once you see it, you can't go back. And you're one of many instructors who have said, when I look at the motion capture technology, which is this wonderful um, objective measure of what's happening in the golf swing, you start to see some things and it starts to raise some questions. And you're starting to go, okay, well, hold on a second. If this is objectively the case, then I'm not so sure certain things can line up in the way that we've necessarily been teaching them, or at least the way that we've been teaching them. No, and I would echo that as well, because that's a similar experience that I've had in my career, which is as we've been able to more objectively measure our psychology, our neurological states, you start to realize there are a couple of psychological, neurological non-negotiables for us, and that many of the things that we have done in the past psychologically, they don't work, or they don't work in the way that we think they do, and we're trying to moving people toward things that might not be as consistent or as as replicable as well. So if, is that an accurate um, reflection of your spots? No, for sure. And I, I would say I love what Sean said as far as like, when, yeah, once you see it, it you you almost feel guilty about some of the stuff you did in the past because you're like, oh my gosh, that was that was completely wrong. I was wrong, and I think I, I think it's hard for some of our um, some of the guys that have had a lot of success in my industry, some instructors that are a little older, to get kind of slapped in the face like that and be like, wait a minute, I was wrong all this time. I was fortunate enough, like I didn't have that much experience teaching, and I was also young enough to be able to be like, okay, let's research it and let's let's figure out. Um, we so yeah, I love I love that kind of cold turkey. Cut it off. Like, nope, I'm not doing that again because that was just that was just wrong. Yeah, it sounds like Chase too. There was a point for you, or many points for you, as I know, also similar to me. Is in psychology we use this term called professional self doubt. Professional self doubt is this thing where you intentionally try to poke holes in your own knowledge, your own skill sets, your own whatever, because it shows you where the deficits are, and. Contrary to popular belief, which would be like, well, this is my method. I'm never moving off of it. I'm not questioning it. It is the absolute end all be all of things. What happens is when we start to second guess ourselves professionally, not in a, I have to doubt everything I'm doing, is we start to see what works and what doesn't. And that makes people more curious about what they're doing. It allows them to be more flexible. It allows us to identify, again, what are the things that really work and are somewhat non-negotiables but also what are some of the things that perhaps we thought were true that aren't anymore. And like you said, once you see it and you go, okay, it doesn't work. It allows you to move off it and actually improve rather than sticking, you know, almost like putting in more effort on things that, you know, don't work to kind of, you know, putting your heels in the ground instead. And it allows us to continue to evolve. So it sounds like there was a significant shift for you in that motion capture where it allowed you to, professionally self-doubt some of the things and conceptions that you already had. Yeah. And I would say, you know, nothing's permanent, you know, like I, I there's just, you can't, any, any, anytime somebody's come up with a system and that they're like, this is the system, this is it. We tweak it a few years later and we change it yeah. a few years later and we realize like, well, that may work for somebody. People, one of my favorite quotes is people are messy. Golf swings are messy. Everybody that I think should move this way ends up having a, a an issue with, an injury or something and they can't move it the way that, that I thought they would. And so now my, my model doesn't work anymore. And so there's just a ton of models and 
And I just, I think if we're not, if we're not trying to learn, if we're not continuously learning, then we we're pretty much dead. Like we need to just keep trying to, I keep referring back to it to a toolbox. I want my toolbox 10 years from now to be twice as big as it is today. And just to, just to be able to, you know, if I only have a hammer, I better see a bunch of nails that, that day, or I'm, I'm not going to help any of my students. And that, that part just, that part just, just pains me. So let's, let's segue just, just a bit back to you. How did we come up with uh, golf beneath the surface? Where did, where did that, where did that name come from? Yeah. It's feeling like we ripped it off of something. Uh, Golf Beneath the Surface is also the name of a book that uh, I released. This is if we're releasing this in May and the same May. So early May released Golf Beneath the Surface. It has been a bit of a labor of love for me over the last couple of years. The subtitle to it is The New Science of Golf Psychology. And similar to your experience doing motion capture, um, there's a point in my career where I was kind of questioning, are people becoming more successful in large part because of the work I'm doing with them or perhaps in spite of it and engaged in some professional self-doubt and really dove into the research on performance psychology in a deeper way than I have in any other time in my life and really kind of finding out like actually there are some things that we've been doing in performance psychology myself included that they don't really work in the ways that we think they do they don't really work very well and starting to understand what does and part of the reason we understand this is because the technology and the research methods that we have available to us relative to 20 some years ago, even, or even more are fantastic. We're able to read things in real time in in ways that are objective and um, provide a look beneath the surface about what's going on. So we might see this, but what's actually going on underneath and hence golf beneath the surface is a collection of what are some of the things we really know about performance psychology as it applies to golf. And my hope is that the book in some ways is a bit of a challenge to the status quo of psychology available to golfers at all levels. Um, And what I'm hoping that it will also do is kind of open some doors for people who have been stuck in some things. What I love about the book is, you know, and I've, I've read some of the famous ones. One, I mean, I, I read all of Rotella's stuff growing up, Bob Rotella. I mean, great, great stuff there, but I, I love the fact that you weren't afraid to educate us on, how our brains actually designed and what it's what what it's designed to do and how that design then affects us in in the sport of golf or, or really any performance arena um, and what it's going to always go back to trying to do and then what we can do to try and we'll get into all this stuff later but what we can do to offset kind of again what the brain's wanting to do and get us into that that give us the opportunity to, to perform, to perform at a, at a higher level and, and get our mental game in, in, in the right spot. So how did you, how did you get into it? How did you obviously write in a book? You, you know, it started way before just the book. So what got you into this, this world of performance consulting? Like you, I was an athlete as a youth. Um, I played soccer at a pretty high level, um, both uh, like we might say amateur level as it relates to golf terminology and then also um, collegiately and it just so happened that when I was in college there were kind of a confluence of two events the first was I was healing from an injury and spending a lot of time on the bench and actually watching games without actually playing in them for pretty much the first time in my life and what I was noticing is the discrepancy between two players on my team one an incredibly freakish athlete super skilled um, and another player who's just kind of average skill and kind of out of shape in a sport where you kind of need to be in shape. 
except when it came to performing, it was the exact opposite in games. The player who was more skilled and more athletic tend to disappear in games. And in soccer terms, that means like you just you're avoiding the ball. You're not trying. You're just trying to stay out of things so you, that you don't make mistakes or look bad, etc. And he just, regardless of what the situation was, he never seemed to be playing anywhere near his skill level. Conversely, my other teammate always played well. Practice games, close games, blowouts, pressure situations, etc. Just always played well. He took the risks necessary to make the types of passes and plays needed, but he was also like enjoying the challenges and the stuff about the game that really kind of is painful and uncomfortable, et cetera. And I just found myself wondering, like, how does this happen? Like, based on what I understood at the time about confidence, like confidence means, well, if I'm good at something, I should just be confident. But clearly that was not the case. And if I'm not good at something or as good as other people, then I shouldn't be as confident. Also, clearly not the case with this. At the same time, I was also taking an abnormal psychology class, which is kind of this laundry list of clinical disorders, which are really important to understand if you're going to be in any type of psychology-related field. And in it, they talk about what it is, the population frequencies, the diagnostic criteria, perhaps treatment options, etc. And for just one minute in a class at the very tail end, the instructor said something. And oh, by the way, there are certain people whose psychology is so productive for them that they are by definition abnormally high functioning people and again by definition that makes them abnormal because it's such a small percent of the population and my question was like well why aren't we talking about this um which led to me being curious about performance psychology or what i was learning as the field of performance psychology and fast forward 15 more years later, a lot of grad school, a lot of studying. And um, like you, I am just curious, and what is it that unlocks us as human beings? And part of that un also means paying attention to what is it that keeps us locked. And, you know, I, like you, don't see performance as, well, it's just this thing, or this thing is the most important thing, or the only thing. Like there are a confluence of factors always contributing to our performance in our lives just so happens that our psychology and neurology and how our brain operates is the first line in the order of those operations. And the reason is because we can't do anything without our brain to tell us to give that command in one form or another. And so for me, I was just like, well, I might as well go to the front of the line because that's what's the first gate to opening up our ability to physically execute skills, to be able to play more freely, compete more freely, be happier, healthier, higher functioning human beings. And the book is the end result of a lot of research and um, work that I've done over the years. And it follows my philosophy as a consultant, which is I want you to be the expert on your own psychology rather than me telling you what to do, because that doesn't have the application and the staying power as you actually understanding how your brain is designed to operate, the way that your awareness is built around it, perhaps the habits and the psychological framework you have that actually grants you access to whatever current physical abilities you have. As you and I have discussed a bazillion times, we all have varying levels of physical ability. Let's just take golf, for example. But how much access we have to those skills is the first gate is always our psychology. So you could be just a moderately good golfer, but if your confidence is stable enough, you have access to that far more consistently and particularly under pressure-filled situations relative to somebody who is immensely skilled, but their confidence is so unstable that in most situations they don't have access to it. 
And again, our psychology is the first line in the order of operations. But what we're really looking for is to get to the very last thing in the order of that operations, which is how we physically execute our skills. And that is, you know, when our psychology doesn't grant us access to doing that freely, you know, the bottom line is all the training we've done, the recovery we've done, the practicing we've done, as you suggested during your time when you were playing pro, like you don't actually have access to it when you need it. And so if we can understand that first domino in in the domino effect here, we open up ourselves to being able to get to the stuff that we really want to use when we can use it. So in, in, in my industry or in my side of the industry, we can, I can measure, I mean, if he'll let us obviously, but we can measure, look at what Tiger Woods does golf swing wise. We can look at a Scotty Scheffler. We can look at a Brooks Kepka who just won a couple, you know, won the PGA. We can look at these guys and figure out what they do mechanically, right? How, in, from a performance consultant and you've got a PhD in, in performance, basically, how does, how did you go about learning all this stuff? Is it interviews with them? Is it, I mean, you can't, you can't dissect all their brains cause they're still living. Unfortunately, is it EGs? Is it not to get too deep into this, but like, how did we, how did you learn what high level performers did? Yeah. So the great news is, is there is a vast ocean of research on human performance even just performance psychology or performance neuroscience. And the research methods they have for that are really quite intuitive and um, technological. And what we have access to now is being able to, in real time, look at our brain activity, which we know is associated with certain parts of our brain, perhaps. We're able to look at things like our dopaminergic levels. Dopamine is a neuromodulator in our brain and nervous system that impacts a lot of things. For example, how effort, how we experience having to apply effort and discomfort, and also how we experience the passage of time. And as we can measure these things, we can then pay attention to, well, what are they doing when we're in certain psychological states? And so the the research methods and we might say research design styles can vary greatly. But what we're seeing is this deep interplay where we go, this psychology typically leads to this neurology and this neurology leads to this type of physical skill execution stuff that we kind of had an idea about before, but now we can objectively measure with by measuring brain activity, uh, dopaminergic levels, cortisol levels, uh, by measure, like with actual brain scans and MRIs of our brain. So, you know, the great news is, is we can start to objectively observe the effects of certain psychological states. And again, the long-term ripple effect of that is how does that actually play out when it's time for us to actually take action and perform? So there's a many ways and I spend many hours a week reading research, trying to make sure that I'm updated on um, the most current and best available research. And so that's kind of where my knowledge comes from other than a whole bunch of graduate school as well. Sure. So, you know, when Secretariat dominated the the horse racing arena a bunch of years ago, they obviously looked at, looked at the heart and saw that, the, you know, its heart was, it, was it a male or female? It was a male, the male. I think it was a male. Anyway, the heart was like four times bigger or three times bigger than, than a normal horse's, horse that size's heart. So that was there was a reason that that horse was so good. Um, so basically, you're saying that it is factual that the people that perform at higher levels and even say more, I hate the word consistent in golf especially, but in performing at those higher levels more consistently, it is factual that they are doing XYZ and they have, they are using 
the brain's good chemicals correctly or the way that we're hoping to use them uh, more often than the people that are, are struggling. We can objectively see that certain psychological states or mindsets lead to and then fill in whatever physiological and neurological states that then are far more conducive to performing under pressure. And and I, use, I like the phrase more consistently, like absolute right. consistency suggests that you can do the same thing in the exact same way. There's always variability involved, especially in a sport like golf. But what you're talking about is can my bell curve, meaning what are the tail ends of my performance on either direction, can I shrink that a little bit? Now, the bell curve doesn't actually shrink, but the standard deviations, meaning how far from my average I move, gets smaller, right? That's That would be like a statistical measure of consistency. Right. And we know that, for example, we know that people perform better when their focus is on the present moment. And we know that that's a high dopaminergic experience for them. We know that the brain activity associated with that is these low-frequency, low-intensity brain waves. And what that does is facilitate physical skills. We know the opposite, us being what I call off time, meaning I'm multitasking by being focused on the past or the future, creates high intensity, high frequency brain waves. It's a low dopaminergic experience and causes disruption to our physical skills. So again, if what we're trying to get to is how do I physically execute my skills better, it is important for us to understand the psychology that then impacts how our brain operates, which then is going to have a ripple effect down to your physical skills. And so for me in my role, I want people to understand those first couple of dominoes because the bottom line is if you don't take care of those, you're leaving the last thing and the most important thing in that moment up to chance. And the bottom line is the best performers in the world, very few of them leave that up to chance. And what they start to figure out at the top levels of performance is that skill is indeed and ability is a differentiator, not nearly as predictive of a as a differentiator as your psychological state like there are when you get to the top levels of any sport statistically speaking the differences between the best and worst players is almost marginal the difference between who can do has access to that skill and actually applies it most consistently and under the most pressure-packed situations that's through the first domino of your psychology and that is typically what um, becomes the most predictive uh, separator so with with what I do, I can't guarantee that anybody can come in and take lessons from me and hit a driver 300 yards. I, I can't. Like some people just physically can't do it. You talk a lot about stable confidence. Again, not getting too deep into this in, in, in our in our first episode because we'll talk about it. At, we'll go into deep, deep, deep. Dive Ad nauseum, probably. Ad nauseum. Yeah, I was going to yeah. say that. But I. so um, do you believe that, you know, your belief is that we need stable confidence to perform at those levels, at the highest levels, right? Do you believe that anybody can get in, can can obtain stable confidence? I think if you're willing to put in the work and do so consistently over time, your confidence will become more stable. Nobody's confidence is completely stable, meaning absolute stable all the time. Right. But like your golf swing, you can improve whatever metric you're using or whatever with consistency and with understanding what you're actually doing and then over time and we'll talk about what overtime looks like for different levels of uh, skill different levels of age etc but anybody can stabilize their confidence if you understand it and understand your brain better the challenge is that most of the things we do right now for that people use myself included at a younger age to try to build stable confidence are actually what's destabilizing it 
And if we build it off more stable sources in the same way that if you build your golf swing off of more stable movements, you know, the, the club face stabilizes as well in the same way for us in our psychology, when our confidence is more stable, so does our performance. Yeah. So, um, you know, our, our goal, at least my goal with what we're doing here with this podcast would be, you know, to educate everybody listening at home and about more about their psychology. Cause I think that's so important understanding what, what and why we think the way they way we do and how we're all a little different. And then two, trying to, people talk about the zone, people talk about flow state, all that stuff. We're trying to get to that. It's not attainable all the time, but to try to get into a more stable confidence platform, let's say to where, um, if you're going to play bad, if you're going to struggle, we want to tend, I at least want to tend to blame the mechanics way more than I want to blame some of the mental stuff that, w- that we'll talk about going forward. And so for, for me, again, I love, I've called it a system in the past, um, doc. And I don't think that, that it's necessarily a system, but, but you've, you've narrowed this down in ways that make it more, much easier to have the conversations after the round. How are you with X, Y, Z? Were you good? Cool. We just hit it bad. We'll move on to the next day. We'll get them tomorrow. Nope. We were really bad with X. We're going to get into X We're we're going to, we're going to really make sure that we're, we're better at that next week. Right. And or next round. And I, I love that because I, I think in the past it's always been, oh, you just got to you got to be more confident. You got to show up. And I used to tell players all this all the time. You know, when you show up, you got to tell yourself you're the best player in the field. Like your brain's like, no, you don't really believe that. That's that's BS. That's not going to work. And so, you know, talking about why we're doing this, what our goals are with the podcast, all that stuff. Like my goal is to help everybody at home get to that. If you have any golf swing questions, we'll dive into the golf swing, too. But how to find stable confidence and how I've worked with some of my players not knowing this stuff for, for less than a year or two, um, how I've gotten them to think a little bit better on the golf course. Yeah. And, uh, what you're alluding to is if, again, if we understand what stable confidence is built on and where it lands in the order of operations for physical skills, then you're actually working from a more mechanistic standpoint than jumping over things without considering them. Uh, and those are really important because if you don't pay attention to those, then you just try to fix your golf swing when may that may or may not be the issue. Correct. Yeah, right. Correct. Chase, tell us where they can find us. So we have on Instagram, it is at GBTS podcast. So golf beneath the surface podcast. Neither of us are super social media influencers. Um, I, I'm a little more active than, than, than Raymond is, but, but we're, we're slowly coercing him into doing more. Um, so you can find me on Instagram at Chase Cooper Golf. I got a website coming out, chasecoopergolf.com. It'll be out pretty soon. Um, Doc, you are BTS underscore mindset on Twitter? On Twitter, uh, BTS underscore mindset. And then you okay. can catch me online at btsmindset.com is my website. And then, of course, you can catch us here yep. uh, as often as possible where we'll be having some conversations with some people and conversations with each other and trying to look at things a little bit deeper and, as we said, beneath the surface. Beneath the surface. And I would say, too, we'll we'll try to hop on some Instagram lives here and there. We'll do maybe some YouTube lives for for, for me. And I would say for, for us, it's about what do you guys want? Do you, you know, give us some feedback. These, these podcasts, having, having shot a bunch of episodes in the past, we will love feedback, any feedback, anything you like, anything you didn't like fire away, send us emails, send us, send us 
direct messages on Instagram. Um, again, I think, I think Raymond Pryor is the best performance consultant and that I best sports psychologist in the world. And so the, the opportunity to sit down and chat, chat with you on these is, is it's going to be awesome. And I'm so excited about it. Um, we don't know yet how often we'll do these. Um, I think there'll be times where they'll, they'll come out once a week. There'll be times where they're every, every other week, depending on our schedule, we've got a ton of content lined up. We've got a ton of episodes lined up. So we'll, we'll kind of play that by ear and see no promises in the beginning, but we're, we're going to try to shoot out once a week for a little while. And then we'll kind of go from there. Um, doc, anything else to add? Well, if you're going to continue to flatter me as much as you have this week, this is going to be the most enjoyable experience you're for welcome. me. Uh, but uh, I'm excited to to share this time with you and, and to share our conversations with uh, our users. And I'll just echo, if you have questions for listeners, um, let us know. Let's make it, let's make this podcast about them and, uh, and try to try to make it a valuable look beneath the surface. At GPTS podcast, we will see you next time.